somewhat of a similar background to mine, and I guess that's good. I think that's good. And uh, we both were coaches, uh, both teachers, and it took me a long time to get it figured out to be a pastor. But, uh, and, but I followed his route. We uh, thank, uh, thank him and his family for being here and for leading us today. Uh, pastor Kolb has is, uh, got a new calling. Uh, he's going to focus on, uh, continue to focus on what has kept him going for so many years, I'm sure, and that is passion. Uh, he is on the board for, uh, uh, for uh, board of Christ for India. He was also uh, very instrumental in prison, uh, in, uh, prison ministry. Let's welcome Pastor Barry Cole, please. Good to be with you, and as Larry said, uh, after 48 years in ministry of one kind or another, and like Larry, I started out as a teacher and ended up coaching high school basketball in Illinois, and then went on to the seminary. I think I spent almost I don't know, 18 to 20 years in teaching and coaching, and then have spent 27, 28, something like that years as a pastor. And people say, well, are you retiring? And I said, uh, no, retire is what you do at night. Re-enlist is what you do in the morning. Uh, I choose the word reposition. I am repositioning myself. The only thing I'm retiring from is retiring from being the pastor of a church. Now, this may sound funny, but I have found, Larry, maybe you do sometime, that being the pastor of a church sometimes gets in the way of ministry. You can think about that one for a while, okay? Well, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be a part of Word of Life for almost your entire time. In fact, I preached here the Sunday before you were installed officially. And, and like Larry said, we've known each other a long time. His younger brother Dennis and I were classmates in high school and college. And I always say Dennis made me a far better football player than I was. I mean, anytime you play behind an all-state tackle, you could be pretty good as a linebacker. Um, but it's good to be here, and I, I'm really encouraged by seeing so many people today, and I've been so encouraged as I keep track of your website to see that you're going to be building, and it's going to be fun. You know, if you'll take a, a repositioned person every year at College World Series, I may be back again. Uh, but if you don't want any of your old retired folks, <laughs> at any rate. Uh, I'm here today to continue this series on the parables, and I was raised in Seward, Nebraska, and I went to St. John's Lutheran grade school, and I remember a teacher way back when who told us that a parable was nothing more than an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's what I've taught people for years, an earthly story's got a heavenly meaning. And so we're going to take a look today at an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning, but even more than that, it's got a meaning to us personally. Now, a lot of people know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, and I like to call it the parable of the two lost sons. Now, when I told a good friend of mine, my coffee-drinking partner, John, back at First Lutheran, that I was preaching on the parable of the prodigal son, he said, hey, Doc, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, who is the most stressed-out person in this parable? Oh, that's a good question. Who's the most stressed-out person in the parable? I thought, well, it could be the father. Uh, it could be uh, the younger son, it could be the older son, and they were all stressed out in different ways, and then John said, well, 
uh, no, you're wrong. The most stressed out person of all in this story is the fatted calf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get to that a little bit later. Well, the parable of the prodigal son is really the third part in a trilogy of parables. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. They typically all kind of fit together, but I know Pastor, yeah, I listened to your message last week, good message. I, I want to kind of get into the drift of what you're doing with all of this. And, uh, but I'm going to deal with this third one today, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the word prodigal really means uh, waster. It doesn't really mean so much prodigal as far as run off, but it's a waster. Somebody who wastes his resources. And the title comes from verse 13, when it, when it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set up for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in reckless living. Now, our outline for today, you have it, I think, in your worshipful, is very simple. We're not going to do the three R's of reading, writing, arithmetic. We're going to do five R's. We're going to talk about restlessness and rebellion and uh, repentance and reconciliation and then finally resentment, which seems like an odd way to end up a message with resentment. But let's start with restlessness. Uh, in verses 11 to 12, uh, it shows this restlessness when the younger son, let me read these words to you. Uh, he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now I want you to notice something. He does not say, give me my inheritance. An interesting thing. He just said, I want my share. Because in that day and age, to have the inheritance implied that you were going to take a certain responsibility. This kid wanted no responsibilities whatsoever. All he wanted was the cold, hard cash. And the interesting thing was a third of this would have come to him when his father died. And so for this young punk to come up and ask for his share of the property, what was he saying in effect? Drop dead, Dad. What a wonderful Father's Day message, huh? How many of you are waiting for your inheritance? We just redid our will. Our kids told us they didn't want anything we had. <laughs> That's okay. We're not leaving anything to him anyhow. <laughs> but he just said, I don't want to have to wait around for you to die uh, in order to get what's mine. So, Dad, since you haven't died soon enough to suit me, I want what's mine now. I don't want any responsibility. And so the fall of this son, or the beginning of his lostness, is when he began to claim his rights. He separated himself from all sorts of interests. He wanted nothing anymore to do with his father, wanted nothing to do with the rest of his family, his older brother, and in reality wanted nothing to do with the community in which he lived. He began to live separately, and he began to live recklessly. Now, that desire to leave home and to do live on your own, that's a natural thing. I mean, most of us who have kids probably are waiting for the day that they actually fly out of the nest and don't boomerang on us. <laughs> you know, and there are a lot of you that are living at home right now who probably can't wait for the day when you can get out. You want to get out on your own. You want to, you want to, you want to take all responsibility to yourself. But here's the prodigal. He's getting restless. And his polluted imagination, though, says being away from my father, being away from my family, being away from my community is far better than what I've known to this point. And so he is looking for a freedom 
total freedom from authority. The authority of his father, the authority of his older brother, the authority of his community. And interestingly enough in this, in this story, the father says, okay. I mean, when you think about it, you know, those of you that are raised kids, have you ever done this? Have you ever said to your kids, okay, if that's what you want, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, this one, I can see it right there. Dad's probably said it. That you want, you want to go? Fine. Uh, you're going to allow him to do that because you know what's down the road. You've been there. Your dad probably told you that one time. That's where you learned how to tell him. When you think about it, sometimes the worst thing God could say to you is what? Oh, that's the way you want to live? Go ahead. Go ahead. God shows us sometimes that our desires don't really bring the lasting satisfaction that come when we stay in his family, in his committee. And the prodigal got exactly what he wanted, but he lost everything he had. So when we rebel against God, God's will, sometimes he just says, all right, your will be done. Let's see how you like it. That's the restlessness. Now let's go on to rebellion. In verses 13 to 16, it says here, now, long after, not long after that, the younger son got all together all he had. By the way, his dad didn't write him a check. They didn't have stuff like that. His dad had to liquidate some assets really quick. And they don't liquidate assets really fast in that society that day. So dad probably took a beating selling land or property or whatever. And this kid just wanted money in his pocket so he could get out of town. He set off for a distant country. And I'll just remark about this. When we sin, don't we like to get about as far away from everything as we can? I used to think that I, I, if I sinned really fast, maybe God would miss it. <laughs> I mean, isn't that why a lot of criminals do this in the dark? They don't want to be seen. But he went off as far away from everybody he knew to do whatever he wanted to so nobody would bother him when he did it. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, I've looked up that word in the Greek because later his brother accuses him of squandering it on prostitutes. But the Greek word for wild living, you know what it means? Wild living. It has no sexual overtones whatsoever. He was just out, you know, party, party, party. That's all he was interested in doing. But after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. The literal Greek to that says, he glued himself to this person. I mean, he must have followed this guy around for days, begging for a job, and the guy finally get rid of him. He said, I got this Jew, what am I going to do with him? It said, so he sent him to his fields to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. See, gathering up his things, he goes to a far country, a place that always kind of exists, first of all, in our own hearts. And like many of us, his happiness was conditional upon his circumstances, and he was just not content with his current situation. See, freedom from soon became freedom to. Freedom to do whatever he wanted to, this freedom to sin, it led to pleasures that provided false enchantment. It's kind of a diluted justification, if you will. The prodigal was eager to see what life apart from God was like. Now, I don't know if, that, if any of you ever tried that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Have you ever tried to find pleasure apart from God? Virtually every church has got them. 
I would even tell you that there were, there were periods in my life that I would say, yeah, I wondered in places I should not have been. I knew better. Yeah, and the prodigal was saying, I have, I'm going to have no more of God. I don't need God. I'm going to have more of life. He lusted for that freedom from restraints. And when his money ran out, guess what? So did his friends. I worked in prison ministry now at Angola Prison for over 12 years. And one thing I've learned about it, and Larry, I applaud you for getting interested in jail ministry here. What a wonderful thing to do. But what I've learned is that when somebody gets sent to jail or prison, the first people to stop visiting are their friends. People find out very quickly these people weren't really their friends. They were friends when things were going well. The next group of people, unfortunately, that stopped coming are family. If you've ever got family in jail, friends, don't stop visiting. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, they need some connection with the outside. So he learned the hard way that he could not enjoy things money can buy by ignoring things that he could not buy. And so he's now forced to work for this guy to do one of the most demeaning jobs. Now, a lot of you, when you heard this story, picture him in a pig pen somewhere. That's not the way they took care of pigs in the Middle East. Pigs roamed wild all through the village. They were like four-legged garbage collectors. Now, we've been in India on three different times, and we've seen pigs walking through the streets and dogs walking through the streets and cows. They just eat garbage. And so this poor guy had to walk all around town keeping track of all of these pigs, which meant every day wherever he walked, people were seeing him and they were looking at him and probably laughing at him. And it said that he longed to have his stomach filled, but nobody was giving him anything. He was probably trying to beg while he was doing this. And he would have actually gotten down on his hands and knees next to Porky and Petunia Pig and would have eaten the pods. But he wouldn't even eat that. I mean, that's stuff that even a pig wouldn't eat. That's kind of interesting. Now, there's a good lesson here for all of us. Sin promises freedom, but sin only brings slavery. Sin promises success, but it only brings failure. Sin promises life, but all sin really brings is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. So those who reject God's rule are condemned to serve the only option, which is what? The devil. So we often meet our destiny on the road that we avoid, that we should be taking. Well, let's go on to the next part. There's repentance in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I love that. When I came to my senses, I preached on this a long, long time ago. I don't remember what I preached about a long, long time ago, but I do remember the title to my sermon. It was called, How Low Must You Go? How low must you go before you finally come to your senses? Do you have to honestly be on your hands and knees in front of a hog trough in slop before you finally come to your senses? I don't know who preaches at a pastor's funeral. My wife asked me that one time. She said, would you preach at mine? I said, well, sure. Who knows you better than me? Uh, who would preach at mine? I can only think of three pastors I'd want to preach in my sermon. Well, maybe Larry, I'll add you to my list. Uh, but the other three are in prison. And, you know, those guys would tell you that they had to get pretty low before they could start coming back up. 
But I, I, I encourage all of you, don't wait till you're on your hands and knees. You can start wherever you are. I mean, that's part of this repentance. He came to his senses, and that first step of remorse comes when people realize the absolute utter foolishness of whatever it is that they're doing. I mean, he complains about no one but himself. He's, he finally says, I've, I've made this mess myself. He evidently was an American where he blamed it on everybody else and the president and George Bush. Uh, you know, he, he didn't complain it on his evil companions or anything. He admits his eagerness to leave his family, his father, his community, and all he's got is this terrible life. He's reached rock bottom where he finally just had to say very simply, I have sinned, I am unworthy. Now, when he left home, he probably had a pretty high self-image. Maybe when he had a lot of money, when he was out with his friends, you know, drinking and dancing and whatever, you know, clubbing with some guys, you know, maybe he had a pretty good self-image with them too. And maybe even when he was herding the pigs, he still had a kind of a good self-image because he may have been walking around thinking, this is pretty sad, but, you know, at least I'm not like some of these other folks. You know, but when his thoughts turned back to his father, when his thoughts turned back to his family, to his community, he began to realize that he'd reached rock bottom. In fact, he said, I'm not even worthy to be called a son anymore. And so he adopted a brand new standard of comparison. I can't be a son, but maybe I can be a servant. Maybe I can be a slave, that maybe I can go back home and I can earn enough money that maybe someday, somehow, I can pay uh, Daddy back for what he's done for me. So that guilt and shame still drove him home to his father. See, when I read this story over and over, I, I just realized that this young man became lost when he claimed his rights. And he's found when he surrendered all of his rights. And the return to his father was really a return to wisdom. And, and this now penitent son has no excuses, and he realizes how well his father treated the servants, and, and so he decides to head back home. Now, there are a lot of people in this world who suffer from a lot of guilt and depression because they separated themselves from their family, their friends, their community. Or even worse, they have separated themselves from their heavenly father, from their church family, from their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they feel a great deal of remorse, but they don't take that step to go back where they can receive grace and mercy and love. Sometimes conviction can lead to despair, but more often conviction can lead to repentance. And that's where we're going to go to verses 20 to 24, this reconciliation. It, it says here, in, starting at verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, I'm, I'm going to stop there just for a moment. I want you to know that the son, while he was figuring out what he's going to say when he gets home, you know, Father, I have sinned against you, blah, 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 blah. If you read that very closely, he is preparing a work righteousness statement. He's going to come home and tell his father all the stuff he's going to do to earn his way back into the family. Now, some of you have been around the church a long time, know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace through faith that you're saved, not through good works. But see, he's got his whole good works speech already going. Now, I want you to notice something. His dad cuts him off. 
But now his father, how often do you think he stood out there and looked for his son? I bet he was out there every morning, every evening, looking for this boy. Any of you ever had a prodigal? Son or a daughter? Family member who wandered away? Maybe not only from your family, but who wandered away from the faith? Maybe some of you were that person. Uh, you don't think mom and dad worried about you, prayed about you? We've been there, worried about, prayed about, turned it over to God, wondered, looked, asked, sought, all that kind of stuff. But it says that his father saw him and filled with compassion, my favorite Greek word, splonknitsomai, felt it in his guts. It said that he decided when he saw him, he was filled with compassion and ran to his son. Now, there's a couple of things here to think about. First of all, old men do not run. Right, Earl? Right, Larry? I just know you're a few years older than I am. You can probably tell, can't you? That's not fair. Old men saunter. My wife says, yeah, come on, keep up with me. You know, if I take her overseas, she should walk behind me. We learned that over in Africa or whatever, but she's always ahead of me. But I just kind of... I amble. I just saunter. Well, over in the Middle East, old men do not run. First of all, you got a long skirt on. And for this old man to run, he would have to hike up his drawers and probably expose his underwear and his skinny little old white legs. And as he ran through the, the village, all the little children would have laughed at him and said, oh, look at that. How funny. He would have really kind of embarrassed himself. He would have put himself in this awkward position. But just think about this. Did Jesus not do that for us when he left heaven to become one of us? He humbled himself. There's another reason why he ran to his son. It's because when he told his dad, drop dead, guess what? That village knew that. There was no way that village was going to let him come back into town. If daddy hadn't come out to meet him, they would have probably stopped him at the gate and killed him. His father literally rescued him from death. Now, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Didn't care that he didn't smell so good or look so good. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. He wouldn't even use God's name against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can get to his work righteousness speech, his father cuts him off and says, Quick, servants, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. It is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, the father doesn't humiliate the son at all. He, he puts that robe back on him to cover up his filthiness. That's that robe of righteousness that you and I receive. He gets the ring back on his finger, which is kind of a sign of authority. He gets shoes back on his feet because slaves don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes. He can now walk in a new way. And he, he says to have a fatted calf prepared. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. You've heard this story so many times. Who did that fatted calf really belong to?
you're thinking that's a trick question, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The older son. Matter the cab the older son now, the other two thirds of the property was his. You want to know why the oldest son was a little ticked off a little bit later? Killed his fatted calf. Now, the younger son moves from give me to make me. And that's what the father does, says, I can make you something different. And that's what God does. That's what we did before in confession and absolution. We say, God, we're not worthy to be your children. And God says, you're right, but I can make you my children. I can forgive and forget. I can clothe you with a robe of righteousness. I can bring you back in the family. I can bring you back with your brothers and sisters in faith. Now, sometimes we think we need to clean ourselves up before we come back to God. I don't know how many times in 25, 28 years of ministry that I've sat with people and said, well, I'd love to come back, but, I, you know, Pastor, I have committed the sin. I've committed the unforgivable sin. If I always say two things. Well, first of all, who are you <laughs> that you could actually come up with a sin that God couldn't forgive? I'm, what kind of arrogance is that? God can forgive anything. And be, besides, if you're worried that you've actually committed the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't. Because if you had committed it, you wouldn't care at all. But sometimes we think we need to kind of spruce ourselves up to come back to God. But God says, no, all you need to do is come back. I'll take you. I'll take the filthiest person I can find, and I can make that person clean. So if you're afraid to come back to God, and I don't know if there's anybody here today who's kind of been kind of wondering where they're at. You know, if you're ashamed of your past, if, if all you have to offer is guilt, then remember that the loving father of the prodigal is still the loving father of all of us. He took back all of those people. Took back the good, the bad, the wicked, the nasty. You know, sometimes, you know, I, you know we got 6,400 guys down at Angola prison, and these are the worst of the worst. These are murderers and sex offenders and habitual criminals. And they're some of the most wonderful people you don't want to meet. And some people are like, well, that's probably just jailhouse conversion. I said, now come down and talk to these guys. God has taken some of the most evil, wicked, bad, and nasty people you'd ever want to meet. And has changed them. Taken them back. Calls them into his family. See, the prodigal wrecked his life. He's looking for employment. Instead, he gets a celebration. It's a picture of grace that is just really hard to ignore. But you know something in the shadows, there's lurking someone. It's the grumbling Pharisee. And you talked about them last week, about how the Pharisees were like, he eats with sinners. But here the Pharisee is called the older brother. So let's deal with resentment very quickly. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. Well, he probably wasn't working because he's managing the farm. Probably sitting under a tree drinking a bottle of Coke or something, and people were working. When he came back near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, in a celebration back in those days, the father or the guest of honor would have sat in the middle and they all came by and thanked him for inviting him to the party. And so the father had to humble himself one more time to go outside to greet this bitter brother. And he tells him, you know, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, whether it's work righteousness. 
yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed a fattened calf for him. Now I'm going to stop there a little bit because in his anger, he, he is telling his dad, you've not been fair. You've not been fair. And, and the part, this struck me about, oh, a year ago when I was looking at this. He said, you never even gave me what? A young goat. Isn't that interesting? They just slayed the fatted calf, but he's complained that he never even got a young goat. It's almost as if he doesn't know the father at all. I mean, I don't think this is the first wild party this dad has ever thrown in his life. I don't think this is the first example of wild joy. In fact, if this is the parable of God welcoming us home, what does it say? I think I heard this already that today where that when somebody comes into God's kingdom, they have a party in heaven. You know, somebody who's miserly and, and nasty his whole life doesn't respond to a, a prodigal son with some lavish fatted calf celebration. I mean, this is, this is a great example of grace again, not just momentary a little flash of love, but to the older brother, his father was clearly a stranger. That's why I said he was lost. I mean, you see that in the meager thing the older brother asked for. He doesn't say, you never gave me a wild party. He doesn't say, you never gave me a robe in the best cap. His request is so small because his father to him is so small. You never even gave me a young goat. See, his, his expectation of a party was what? A young goat. Why? It's because he had a young goat God. And I think there's a lot of us that, if we're honest sometimes, you know, we have a young goat God. It's a God who's kind of forced to love us but doesn't really like us very much. A, a God who delights in withholding, or a God who sits up in heaven and tries to keep records of wrong, you know, and, and he wants us to kind of beg just to get a young goat. But friends, I want you to remember this. You and I are here uh, for his glory. We're not here for our glory. I mean, don't think for a second that your God is small. I mean, don't think for a moment that God's grace is limited. Don't think for a moment that God's mercy is temporary or that his love is only doled out by performance. God, our God, capital G, God, is not a little goat God. Now, this parable is about two lost sons. Both were slaves, if you think about it. One to kind of economic plight, the older brother by perception. I mean, there are some people who can live in the same house. They can eat together, work side by side, and emotionally still be miles apart. People can also be active in church and yet harbor wrong attitudes and wrong motives. It's kind of a fatal error sometimes just to assume that we're members of God's family just because we were raised in a Christian home. You know, I, I always tell some people, you know, some people think they're Christians because they've been sitting in church for umpteen years in the same pew. And I always tell them, well, you know, sitting in the, in the same booth at McDonald's will never make you a Big Mac either. Uh, I mean, I can, st I can stand out in my garage all day. I'll never become a Pontiac. Uh, you know, I can be baptized every day in the ocean until every fish knew me by first name. It doesn't necessarily guarantee me. But, you know, everyone is a physical child of God by creation. The very fact that you are here today, you're a physical child of God because he created you. But not everybody is a spiritual child of God. 
That takes rebirth. That's why in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center, we practice infant baptism. That's why we baptize adults. That, you know, that's why we welcome them into God's family. And so the prodigal father chose to forgive, but the older brother refused. And see, forgiveness is something that we need to build because we're going to maybe one day have to cross it ourselves. Uh, British General uh, James Oglethorpe, uh, he was the um, founder of the British colony of Georgia, one time told John Wesley, Preacher, I never forgive. And Wesley said then, Sir, I hope you never sin. See, if we harbor an unforgiving older brother attitude, we have a difficult time being in fellowship with God. I love the fact that God treats both sons with tenderness. His riches were always at his first son's disposal, but they evidently were left unused. I mean, even the older son, his father's riches were there, but he didn't choose to take advantage of them either. And we only have ourselves to blame if we don't take full use of all God's abundant grace and mercy and love. Now, this parable is open-ended there. Otherwise, I'm just saying, well, Larry can explain it to you all. But it is kind of open-ended. The storyteller here, Jesus, kind of invites us to reply to the father's gentle response, which is in verses 31 and 32. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. See, our Heavenly Father has both compassion and wealth. He loves his sons and his daughters. I mean, that's why he created us in the first place. That's why he wants to recreate us by bringing us into relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. Now, both sons were far from home, one geographically, one spiritually. And to both of those sons, he says, come home. Come home. Now, friends, I don't know where you are today. Uh, I, I'm privileged to be a father and a grandfather. And I love my kids dearly. And, you know, I'm sure that somewhere I'll probably get some goofy card and necktie yet today. Uh, or at least a phone call that says, Hi, Pop, hope you're enjoying the games. But yeah, if you, if you ever feel far from home, use this opportunity to talk to your father. And I would go so far as to say on Father's Day, if you still feel a little bit far from your physical home, why not pick up the phone later or go over and talk to your physical father? visit him at his home. But more than anything, if you feel far away, come back to your Heavenly Father for salvation, for restoration. This is a great place to turn over your fears, your pride, your priority, and sin because God, you know, like that Motel 6 commercial says, the lights will leave the light on for you. <coughs> you can always come home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are not a little goat God. Uh, you are a lavish God, and you love to love people. You love to show mercy to people. You love to show grace to people. You love to forgive people, and you love to welcome them home. And Father, we pray today that you will strengthen us by the very presence of the Spirit in our life to draw us home to you on a continuous basis where you call us not servants, not slaves, but sons and daughters. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.